Congressman Jerry Connolly could not wait any longer for the Republican majority to jump on the Vitara bandwagon. The Virginia Democrat and ranking member of the House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, IT and Innovation handed out grades under the 16th iteration of the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act or Vitara scorecard on Tuesday. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me to discuss why Connolly lost his patience and most importantly, how agencies fared. Jason, how are we doing today? All right, Eric. Fatara, it's my favorite time of the year. Absolutely. So why did Congressman Connolly issue the Fatara scorecard now? He did it without the chairwoman, Nancy Mace, the congresswoman from South Carolina, the, the chairwoman of the committee. He, he had asked her several times over the course of the last really nine months, hey, the thing that's most important to me is Fatara. I really want to continue the bipartisan effort to hold agencies accountable for meeting the, the 2014 law. He said, listen, Fatara has worked. I've worked with Daryl Issa, Congressman from California, Mark Meadows, Trey Gowdy, Jody Heiss, all Republican, either ranking members or chairman over the last you know, uh, 10 years or so. And he goes, I want this to continue. And in fact, during a, a hearing back in, in June uh, on the cutting edge technology that Mesa's committee held, he actually said to her, listen, you promised me we would do this. We haven't done it yet. When are we going to do it? And I think, you know, he saw the calendar move. It's September. And he said, I I just can't wait any longer. It's been nine months since the last scorecard. We need to do this. So he released it on Tuesday. And uh, he actually held uh, also a a roundtable discussion. Don't call it a hearing, Eric. It's a roundtable discussion about the latest scorecard. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks. How did agencies fare on said scorecard? Generally speaking, agencies did well. There were uh, 13 A's, 16 B's, and 5 C's. The three agencies that got uh, the, the highest scores included the Labor Department with an A, the U.S. Agency for International Development also got an A, and the Department of Education, kudos to them for getting an A on the scorecard. As you can tell, everyone did quite well, even the Defense Department, which you know typically got lots of D's and F's, uh, continued to be at that pace of a C. So these are all important things. I think the other piece that, that we shouldn't lose sight on, Eric, when we look at the scorecard is the biggest improvements that we saw was the transition to the EIS or Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract that the GSA runs. This is that big mega telecommunications contract. Agencies are well behind on. GSA is giving agencies a extension time and time again. But what we saw from the December 2022 scorecard to the September 2023 scorecard is the doubling of the agencies with passing grades, meaning they've uh, disconnected at least 95% of their circuits. So 10 agencies received passing grades, 14 received failing grades under the network's transition. All right. So at this not a hearing roundtable discussion that Congressman Connolly held on Tuesday, he was trying to discuss the scorecard. But what were some of the other main discussion points that came up up there? Interestingly enough, he probably had the better set of witnesses than he's had at any other Fatara hearing over the last uh, 10 years. He had uh, CIOs from the State Department. He had GSA, SSA, Social Security Administration, the deputy CIO from VA, the Commerce Department CIO, and of course, the Government Accountability Office all showed up just to have a discussion about the scorecard and where it can go, what, why it's helping or not helping. Uh, and generally speaking, I think with one thing, the one trend that I would point to is there's still a lot of discussion around the cybersecurity scores. Now, Jerry Connolly was not happy with the how the Office of Management and Budget from last scorecard against December 2022 changed some of the metrics that they used, the publicly available metrics. Uh, they gave good reason why they made the changes to those metrics, but he was not happy about it. And I think what we heard from those folks who, te- who, who no, can't say testify, Eric, who talked at the roundtable 
was there are too many cybersecurity metrics. Uh, there's the FISMA metrics. The, there's the metrics used by the IGs, which is very similar to the FISMA metrics. There's performance.gov metrics. There's uh, other presence management agenda metrics, and they seem to be pulled in different directions. And, you know, for instance, Kelly Fletcher from the State Department said, hey, I got a B on the performance.gov, but I got a D on the scorecard. And she said, that's very frustrating to us because how do we explain that not just to our boss, but does it really show how we're doing with cybersecurity. And, and, you know, Kelly Fletcher from State Department said, we're better than a D. I know that. And I think if you ask any agency, they would tell you we're not a D or a C. I think they wouldn't say they're perfect, but they're definitely better. And I think one of the things that they all talked about was we we want to have more consistency, more standardization. So we're all getting measured the same way. So when I talk to my deputy secretary, when I talk to GAO, when I talk to the IG or Congressman Connolly, we're all talking about the same sets of metrics instead of all these different ones. The other thing I think that came out that was really interesting during the roundtable discussion was focused on the new scoring areas, whether it's you know CIO reporting or cloud. And I think those are really important, too, about how to continue to evolve them. I think everyone agreed at the roundtable that the metrics need to continue to evolve. And I think that's one area where I think there was, has been a lot of talk over the last few years. But I think there's still some ongoing discussions between GAO, between Congressman Connolly and, and, and the committee, as well as the OMB and the CIO Council. Interesting. So will there be any changes in December or whenever the next scorecard comes out? Right. I think Congressman Conley would love to see that December scorecard and a hearing and Congresswoman Nancy Mace, the chairwoman of, of the subcommittee, all take part in this. I think, you know, he, he really would like to see this be back to a regular hearing instead of a roundtable discussion. I think the two areas that they are definitely looking at and agencies got preliminary scores under was this idea of CIO reporting, really looking at structure of the budget and the acquisitions. Do you or don't you have authority over a procurement? Do you understand IT spending? And then the other piece was the cloud. How are you moving to the cloud? How are you rationalizing your applications? In fact, Eric, I got a copy of the letter that Congressman Connolly sent to agencies back in August asking about for this data. And if you look at what they focused on in the letter, and this was about 30 questions, you know, about seven or eight big questions and then some sub questions underneath it. And a lot of it was looking at, okay, how are you dealing with application rationalization? Are you following the playbook that that OMB and the CIO Council put out? Uh, if so, what have you done? When are you going to complete the migration? So there's a lot of questions in there about these activities. And I think that's how the Congressman Connolly and his staff scored agencies' progress with these initial kind of pilot grades. The one thing I'll just offer is that there was a lot of frustration, I think, among CIOs. Maybe it didn't come out the hearing, but what I'm hearing from sources about that scoring approach, a little bit of, well, did you satisfy the staff enough to get a better grade or not versus based on metrics and publicly available data. I think, you know, you and I can disagree over the data, whether it's good data or bad data or it's right or wrong. But if it's all more subjective, well, you know, did I meet Eric's goals? <laughs> then that maybe is not as a, a, a strong as a way to do a scorecard. And I think that's a concern that I've heard from folks in the uh, federal community. More to come for sure. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. Thank you as always. Always a pleasure. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.